0: Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's Monday, February the 13th, 2023. 13th is supposed to be the unlucky day. I think I have an unlucky life having this show, and I'm having to talk to writers. They're such a a bunch of miserable failures, mostly. I couldn't probably say that publicly, but I can probably say it since nobody watches this anyway. Um, last week, we did a show with Fintan O'Toole, one of the best writers actually in the world. He spent 10 years on his last book, We Don't Know Ourselves, A Personal History of Modern Ireland." Uh, And it's not really a personal history, acknowledges that his life's boring, so he wrote a contemporary history of of Ireland. It's a magnificent book. It was one of New York Times' best 10 books for last year. Uh, But that's one of 10 books. Most of the other tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of books are complete and abject failures, ignored by everyone. They don't even get on this show. Earlier today, I did a a conversation with a young writer, Thai-American writer, Uh, My Nardone, he has a new book of collected short stories, Welcome Me to the Kingdom. He spent years on it. God knows what he got paid. It's a tough life being a writer, even a successful one, even the writers who come to print. Most of them are failures and most, um, whether or not they recognize it, I think are miserable. That at least is according to my guest today. One of my favorite guests uh, always comes on the show. One of the more cheerfully miserable writers, Stephen Marsh. Um, He has a new book out, uh, which is called On Writing and Failure. And he had a feature about it uh, in the New York Times at the weekend, A Writer's Lament, the better you write, the more you will fail. Stephen, are you a bit of a failure? You don't look like one. You have that sort of, uh, for people watching, you have that Martin Amis. uh, I
1: wish. Sleeping with Jermaine Greer and running around London in the seventies—that would—that would—that would that would that would be that, that would be the.
0: Uh, well, you're the you're the Canadian version of Martin Amis, which
1: <laughs> yeah, that's that's a that's a deep slight on Canada. But um, uh, no, I mean <laughs> I, maybe also a, on of, yeah, also a Martin Amis. Yeah, and also Martin Amis. But uh, I, I I don't know. I, as I'm age, I'm sort of like what success and what failure looks like in terms of my own self um is more or less meaningless i mean some people would find it ridiculous that i would consider myself successful in any way others would find it ridiculous for me to consider myself a failure i i really think it's all perspective and um and it it doesn't in the end it doesn't really matter i mean it's like it it, it's just some kind of like weird classification system that doesn't actually apply to much uh in reality or certainly not in you know in the lived experience of writing
0: it's interesting Stephen. out here uh, as you know you've written a lot on tech there's a cult of failure people boast about their yeah. failure writers though don't boast about their failure i wonder why you're one of the first writers to actually publicly acknowledge um this connection between writing and failure in the new book
1: yeah, I mean, it is interesting that writers don't even really talk about their rejections much, even with their close friends, in my experience. like it's, And, you know, rejection is the most common, like that is the one thing that absolutely unites all writers. I mean, I think part of it is that you think like, well, if I talk about this, I'm going to be conceding my own myth to the world of failure. But I mean, I think to me, part of this, one of the reasons to write this book, one of the reasons... I find these stories comforting um, is that you realize that, you know, everyone sort of thinks of themselves as a failure. Uh, you know, I think one of the opening quotes is one of the epigraphs is from Orwell. And he said, you know, any life looked at from the inside is nothing but a series of defeats. I think that's an incredibly profound line. And I think it, um... and Orwell
0: never even had any kids.
1: Yeah. And Orwell didn't even have any kids. Exactly. I mean, what did it, well, no, he did, didn't he? He had a daughter. He, did he? he died? Yeah, he had a daughter. Probably he died northern. when she was like four years old, which is, and then I think her mother was. <laughs> yeah, I mean, at the end, he was living in Scotland. Uh, yeah. Taking care of roses with his very young daughter, and his wife had already died. I mean, not a very uh, uh, encouraging perspective on life. I don't think. Yeah, I think he had a daughter, or maybe it was her daughter. I don't, think, daughter she, and I don't he, think he did have a daughter. Yeah, I, I forget. I forget. But I, I know he, I know he had some experience with children. But anyway. Um, yeah like and he he of course was like massively successful as you could get right um so like i i I, I these. these this, I mean, I don't
0: think it's a conversation about orwell but not in his own lifetime really
1: oh yeah he sold massive copies co- quantities of 1984 for sure and mm. uh like and he um he was well known to be the best journalist of his generation when he was alive. I mean, he did die very young. He died at 44. Uh, But he like, I mean, he was, he was absolutely a success by, I mean, by any metric, like best-selling internationally published, uh, massively influential, um, hugely uh, influential in, in in politics. um, And also like,
0: you know, he could
1: publish wherever he wanted. Um, You know, uh,
0: in the book that, um, uh, the writers have really thin skins. Uh, you, you you write beautifully. Their their skins are so thin that you can hold them up to the light and see through them. Uh, why is that the case?
1: Well, I mean, I think there are certain levels of failure in being a writing, like in being a writer. One of them is the obvious, the career stuff, which is you know it is a hard way to make an easy living, um, and it, it like it, it is demanding of fortune. You need to be lucky. And that is, uh, and, and waiting around for luck or struggling to find luck, you know, that is a struggle. But I also think in writing, there's something inherently, um, fail, there, there's something failing about the very process of writing. Like, for one thing, when, when you submit things, you get rejected a lot. Like, that's just part of the process. But also, when you write, most of writing is actually throwing stuff out. You know what i mean like it's like good drafts do not come you know it doesn't come like naturally and then you're there you have to throw stuff out all the time so you're constantly dealing with rejecting yourself um and then you're and then there's also just the fact that you never get really to a point of perfection in language um that's you know that's not something that is ever given to anyone like a, a work is never finished it's only abandoned so there's like different layers of failure, and that makes it very. I mean, that makes it that you get raw, right? And I think actually that rawness is something that uh, that never goes away. There's no level of success that transcends it. Um, well, and is I think- that
0: different. I mean, I take your point that maybe piece of writing is never perfect, but why is that different from a meal, or a podcast, or a legal document?
1: Well, I think. There, there absolutely can be perfect meals. I mean, I've had perfect meals. Why could you have a perfect
0: course. meal and not a perfect piece of writing?
1: A meal is an ephemeral experience that, that exists once and then is gone, right? I mean, what you're looking at in something that is uh, literary, like literary excellence, is something that it gives an illusion of permanence that, of course, is entirely uh, illusory. Right. And, and so like what, what you what you what you achieve is really you want, you know, as as Flaubert said, you like want to move the star- I don't get the quote exactly right, but you want to move the stars, but you end up banging a tambourine for a bear, right, for a dancing bear. And that's um, that's something that's inter- integral to language uh, more than more than any other art form. Music, I think, can actually be perfect but uh but writing can never be perfect.
0: But uh, uh, what about books that work? I mean when I when I think of a perfect novel the one that always comes to mind is uh, the great gatsby. Could that have been sure. better?
1: Oh yeah. Of course. Of course it could. I mean you think there's not a single sentence in in that that couldn't be improved? Of course. I mean like yeah but it, you, right, know, a, a, a novel, right, you know a novel you know is better than... not Capable of perfection. Like, if you're going to talk about perfection, like when you talk about something like a Yeats poem or, you know, Keats's Ode to a Nightingale, uh, you know, I mean, one of the things that, you know, my PhD is in Shakespeare, and one of the things you encounter, particularly in Shakespeare, is that these masterpieces are all rewritten and they're all um, like to be or not to be, there are three versions of it. Right. Ode on melancholy. There's three different versions of it, each of them with different wording. And, you know, no one knows which one is the best one. So those artifacts are not stable. Right.
0: And and, Uh, right. right. And and what is also not stable is the place of a writer in our culture. That's That's what you focus on in the book. Writers used to be spoiled. They used to be taken seriously. You seem to be suggesting they're not anymore. Is that fair?
1: Well, I mean, I think there was a kind of particular moment in post-war United States and satellite countries where there was this explosion of literary institutions and this explosion of um, print, you know, and this explosion of education where there were just more and more readers all the time. And we're living in the aftermath of that, right? I mean, all all of the literary institutions, press... Uh, universities, print like they're all in decline, right? And I, I, mean, I've never been involved in an institution that was not, in some sense, in managed decline, other than tech companies, right? And, um, and that is just that's just a fact of life. I mean, I think we're kind of returning to a historical norm, uh, rather than, you know, going into something particularly dark. But it, it, there's no question that there was a there was a, a window. Uh, in the post war period that where there it was just there was just more opportunity people i mean i sort of saw the tail end of it i mean just a little taste of it and i mean it was you know a- anyone could get an academic job and like you know it, it was not it was not that was not considered a difficult thing to do now it's like the hunger games um we know about journalism like i don't i don't think we need to explain that and uh you know and and the same is true for the humanities the same is true for for every form of the written word really
0: yeah talking of journalism um your book is number one and two in on amazon i don't know how it can be one and two since it's the same book but sit so you're and
1: paperback
0: a, yeah well that's pretty good Stephen. i that's mean you're good, a success and yeah. amidst all the all the all the catastrophes and collapse your last book um the next civil war you were on the show talking about that that's done very well yeah. so but, i mean you can still make a living as a writer you're not
1: Well, yeah, Yeah, I mean, it's possible to make a living as a writer, yeah. Well, I mean, I do feel very blessed, like, and I don't even teach creative writing, right, which I think is, like, extremely... You don't have to. I mean, failures teach it. Successes do it,
2: right?
1: I don't think think failures... I mean, Zadie Smith teaches it. Like, you know, like, there's lots of people out there who are extremely successful who teach it. But, like, it's... um, and and extremely good to teach it uh you wouldn't you wouldn't
0: choose you'd rather be a writer would rather write than have to teach wouldn't they
1: well i i mean you know i don't think there are a lot like i think a writer would rather be rich and just do whatever the hell they want (laughs) but um that, that's also not particularly like that's that's the hard part is getting there. Although I don't I mean, I think what writers actually want is like 50,000 people who will buy whatever they write. And, um, you know, that's that's a more and more remote goal for for any writer.
0: Well, there was a time um, you, you begin the book with Philip Roth, who not only wrote like a Hollywood star, but looked like one and behaved like one as well, for better or worse. Mm, um, a bit. I, I'm sure Roth complained the whole time and complained about sure. American not being ready for his work and everyone being philistines and not being paid properly and hating his editor and his publisher and his reader. So what's different now?
1: Well, um, I don't think anything is different now. I mean, I, I think, you know, writers are always complainers for sure. Um, you know, I mean, the, op- the, the opening line of the Roth book, I mean, is the opening book, the opening story of the book, which is a a friend of mine saying this line from Philip Roth, like, do you ever get a thicker skin? Yeah, Nathan. Nathan Nathan's telling me this story where he asked, you know, Philip Roth, like, do you ever get a thicker skin? And Philip Roth saying something to the effect of, you know, uh, you never get a thicker skin, your skin just gets thinner and thinner until they can see right through you. I mean, that's Philip Roth, right? Like, the the point is really that I, I think it's one of the things I take comfort from, and I think is good for young writers to know, is that the state of struggle and perseverance that they're in is not a phase of this activity. This is actually what it is, right? And if, like, you're not, you shouldn't feel like you've, so there's something wrong with you, that you're still struggling. Like, actually, that's how this is. And that's and and if you want to do this, those are the conditions under which you're going to have to do
0: it. What about um, the, the socioeconomics of it? Um, the the guy I interviewed earlier today, my my Nardoni, had been to Columbia, writing school, a private school in Thailand. I assume he's from money, can afford to do these things. Um, how did right. you get into it? And I think it seems to me that what's really changed is it's increasingly writing has become an aristocratic activity. Yeah. I had. Um, dinner last week in Los Angeles with some friends of my son, just graduated from NYU and a young woman said to me, I asked her what she was doing, she said, I'm a writer. And that was a conversation stopper, not beginner, because it suggested that she wasn't really doing anything but she could afford to not do anything. So is writing now really just a privilege of the upper class?
1: Well, I think generally the arts in general have become um, more and more aristocratic. Uh, particularly, of course, film and television and acting, um, where, you, I mean, you really feel it in acting, where if you look behind the biographies of comedians and actors, it's like, oh, his dad ran Molson, you know, or, or whatever. I mean, I think, you know, that is possibly true, that it is, it is definitely true that writing is becoming more aristocratic, but I actually feel that the thing about writing is that, um, you know, you can read wherever, And getting access to the world, the literary world, is does not require you to be anywhere, right? Like I was born in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, right, and I I had the same access to Shakespeare and Dickens and John Keats and T. S. Eliot as anyone living in London, right? And uh, and and that's literary literature to me has always been about this cosmopolitanism in time and in time, particularly geographically and in class. Um, It's always been a a middle-class activity, right? Uh, Like going back to the 16th century. Um, So I, I think, you know, we're obviously seeing the aristocrat, you know, the the inequalities are getting to the point where, you know, anyone involved in a creative profession practically has to have money, but literature is sort of the last, the the least of those, I would say. Um, You still can, you know, not necessarily do an mfa you can still go out and hustle it's still possible to do that it's a hell of a lot harder but it's still within the realm of possibility to do that whereas i think in film and and, in acting and particularly in in visual arts it's virtually impossible at this point um so i mean that's a yes and no answer but i i think that is the truth
0: what are the greats tell us your book um uh, is littered with examples from some of the great writers: James Joyce, uh, the uh, Russian poet Anna Akhmatova, uh, Akhmatova. I always get her name hard. Yeah, I can't pronounce it properly either. Uh, I shouldn't have even tried. James Baldwin, of course, always pops up in these sorts of books. Um, the, do they help the all these people, or do they just feel make us feel even bigger failures, even smaller?
1: Well, you know, I mean, the fact that James Joyce couldn't get a job at an Italian technical college, like he couldn't convince them in Como that he knew enough to teach people how to write English and he'd already written, you know, Dubliners and most of Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man. I mean, you know, James Joyce could never make a living from writing. I think that that it's, it's important if you're a writer to know that, right, to know that, like, deserving is not how this works like it's not like if you become really good you then then all these rewards happen for you that's not that's not the process of this and even right
0: yeah, you, you don't write ulysses so that you can get a job teaching in a technical university uh english as a foreign language do you
1: no but you know joyce actually cared a lot about money and you know he was he was actually you know kind of guy who he just couldn't win for losing you know what i mean like he just like he um he was very poor with money. He was very bad with it. But he absolutely thought he was writing for money. I mean, those original short stories are not, you know, insanely, uh, un- you know, avant-garde or anything like that. Like uh, they're
0: absolutely- The, uh, the, the uh, portrait of the artist as a young man rather than as a young man. Yeah, I mean,
1: well, in Dublin, it's like, you know, those are kind of things that absolutely appeared in magazines in that period, right? Um, They're just... You know, much, much, much better than anything else that appeared in magazines in that period. But he, like, I think the point really here is that the, there's no re- quality reward matrix here. Like, that's just not how this system works. And you really need to be aware of that. You really need to know that, like, if you're writing well, like that is you have to. You're. It's not necessarily that you're going to be rewarded for it. And also if you're rejected it doesn't mean that it's bad right like it like it it, it, that's not how this works either so you you have to kind of be disattached from this at the same time as you are absolutely you know hustling and absolutely uh you know integrating yourself into the world I mean
0: isn't one of the problems is the publishing industry itself has also become a a bastion of a kind of aristocracy, a woke aristocracy, has become increasingly intolerant and only publishes stuff that it reflects its own values. And the publishing industry is becoming narrower and narrower, more and more intolerant. Is that fair?
1: Well, I mean, I don't think the publishing industry has ever had a great track record of getting things right. I mean, I think they're... I mean, I think they have a really... Like, people are surprised when... Um, you know, they read, like, the, the diary of Anne Frank was rejected by 16 publishers, but, like, we have a random diary of some girl we want to publish. I mean, you know, it, it, it doesn't make a lot of sense to publish it. Like, publishing is not a hugely sensible business where um, where it's really easy to see what the correct thing is to do. I mean, it's just too easy to, um, you know, piss all over publishers for making these mistakes. I mean, hindsight hindsight is twenty twenty and you know the truth is nobody knows how the market is going to respond to these books, and at least of all the writers, but the publishers are, are a close second behind them, and uh, in in their ignorance. And I, I just think it's you know you're trying to get order around something that is inherently random, uh, and that that is you know that is inherently frustrating. So I definitely don't blame publishers. Like I don't I I, I think they I mean. If, if I would blame publishers, then I think I would know what would work, and I sure don't.
0: What about technology? Uh, you've written a lot about it. You had an interesting piece recently in The Atlantic, The College Essay Is Dead. You're writing about uh, AI. Um, we ha- I, I did a show a few weeks ago with Steven Rubin, a big-time ex-publisher. He used to run um, some of the big uh, houses. And I asked him about how chatbots would change the world. This is what he said. This doesn't make you miserable, nothing, Will. What about the latest um, mania in Silicon Valley for AI chatbots, chat GPT? I know you're not a big tech guy, but I'm sure you've heard of it. Uh, Technology that allows... Give me a
2: fucking break. No way. No way. No way. I just just turned the page. I just
0: don't deal. Well, I just had a doctor who suggests that it's going to transform the medical industry. Why shouldn't it transform publishing? I don't I mean, think it most will. books, as you know, aren't very good. Most writers aren't particularly good. Why can't the machines do their work for them? Um
2: because I don't believe that they can do that kind of creativity. Never? And I, I don't I don't know enough about it. Um I I would say that surely not take 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 the curious incident of the dog in the nighttime one of the books i'm most proud of having published it's such an original story and you're in the mind of a uh, kid on with asperger's there's no way they could do that kind of creativity they can check a lot of the boxes for a murder thriller or some kind of other book a romance but i don't think they can do real so they may not
0: be able to do bestsellers but for the that that's a brilliant book incredibly original but for the other 99 books out of 100 that aren't original ai can do the the work for them well
2: first of all i beg to differ with you that the number is probably 85 out of 100 that aren't original uh maybe you're right i don't know but they definitely can't do the 15 percent the other kind and in the same way in the same way that everybody predicting you know death of books, it's not going to
0: happen. So I haven't convinced you, Steve, to be miserable. Well, I'm I'm an optimist, remember? And an enthusiast. You're a bit of an optimist too, I think, um, uh, But But (laughs) let's come back to his core point, which to me was astonishing, that he acknowledged, and he's supposed to be the optimist and the defender of the publishing industry. He acknowledged that 85% Eighty-five percent of books could have been written by AI. What's your take yeah. on that? Well, see,
1: you know, I've used AI for a long time to write. Like, I wrote my first algorithmically generated story for Wired in 2017. Um, I wrote one for MIT Tech Review. I've written a, I, I wrote a horror story that was 17 percent computer generated for LA Review of Books in 2019, I think, and then in 2020, a 100 percent computer generated um, story for Lit Hub. Um,
0: and you're writing a, you know, a, an AI novel now yeah
1: right? I'm, I'm currently I'm currently working on an AI generated novel. What you have to understand is that this people talk about this stuff who haven't used it and once you use it, um, both the fears and the hopes kind of disappear. So like this is the pocket calculator of language is what it is. And what it cannot it, what it can do incredibly well is if you say to it, write – uh, in the style of a uh, lawyer's letter, an angry lawyer's letter, making these 10 points, it will do it and it will do it to a 85% level of a lawyer, right? And, you know, it will, and it, it's, it's going to get a lot better. Like that, that is going to get incredibly better at. Um, you know, we're only still dealing with you know, GPT three, which is one hundred seventy five billion parameters. I mean, I've seen Google's Palm, which is five hundred forty billion parameters. It's, you know, it's like a Lamborghini compared to a Ford. Like it's it, it it's a it's a freakishly incredible machine, but none of them have intentionality, right? Like like the idea that they're going to create like does a pocket calculator do math? Like a pocket calculator doesn't do math. It just does what you tell it to do, and similarly with all of these. AI tools, stochastic writing instruments. And I, I mean, I'm obviously, I, I would go so far as to say I'm at the forefront of using this stuff. I, I have access to Cohere, which is a great company here in Toronto that has, you know, incredible language models. Um, and I've, you know, I've used a lot of these instruments quite a bit. Um, it's not ending creativity at all. It's a new form of creative expression. It's, it's like, um, what it is, is it's like two turntables and a microphone. Like you are reusing old things in a way that where you can make them new. And that's, that's very exciting. But the idea that it's going to replace creativity is just misunderstanding what the nature of an algorithm is. It's just a series of instructions. And, you know, even these machine learning ones, which, you know, are very surprising and can do shocking things. um, And, you know, like the stuff that I'm working on, I find totally exhilarating uh, creatively, but the idea that it's going to replace writers, like, no, I mean just like it's it sort of that's sort of to me that's like saying like did the um record player replace musicians? Like no, it didn't. It just changed what they did. And it changed why we need them. Um and it similarly will have, change, have yeah, similar uh, the,
0: tertiary effects. The book business. Couldn't editors now they know what they want. They don't need to commission writers, they can do it themselves.
1: Well, I have a friend who like has a son because it's Canada, so we have French immersion here because everyone wants their kids to be able to be prime minister. And his son doesn't like the, you know, the the French books that at the school because they're boring and they're about you know subjects. So instead, he goes to ChatGPT and says, "Can you write me a book in French at this grade level about whatever superhero?" And the and it does it right. And you know that's pretty fascinating. Like that that it, that it was be capable of doing that. But I don't think that's what people like i think there are a bunch of readers who will want give me another romance novel and it will be able to do that in a totally incredibly accurate way i mean it's probably being done right now like mass production of uh, algorithmically generated romance stories i mean they're all if you've ever seen a like a the bible of the romance novel it's already formulated yeah i've had some One
0: romance of, novel novelists right. on the show who seem to be computer generated as well yeah i
1: mean like they like i it, won't it's, mention
0: it's, any names steven so finally Back to yeah. this issue of on writing and failure. How does AI and generative AI in particular, and as you say, we're only at the beginning of this, GPT-4 is going to come out, but Google's going to come out with their own version, which, as you say, is a Lamborghini. Uh, how, how's this going to change the idea of writing and failure? Uh, you know that the college essay is dead, which might not be a bad thing since it yeah. wasn't a great thing in the first place.
1: Well, I mean, I think... I, I really don't know. I mean, I think one thing when you use ChatGPT or you use any, I really, I mean, I knew that back in 2019 when I was using PseudoWrite and and, and using it to recreate poets and things like this. Um, like, if you want to manufacture a B plus essay, th- this technology is extraordinarily e- easy to do that. I think what we're going to see is that the capacity to make formulaic linguistic expressions, which, you know, is sort of how we're trained to write now, Uh, like, you know, I know how to write an incredibly good op ed that fits all the bills, second, nut graph, nut graph conclusion, you know, I know how to do all that stuff, that's going to become less and less important as it becomes automated, what's going to become much more important is can you convey yourself? You know, I mean, I think one of the things is we've taught children how to write like machines, and now we're going to have to teach them how to write like humans. And I think that's, that's not necessarily a terrible thing at all.
0: And can, are we going to be able to do this with AI instead so we won't need me or you?
1: You could do it right now. I mean, <laughs> practically. Like, I mean, that, that's, not, that's not a million miles away.
0: I better become a writer, Stephen.
1: <laughs> I wouldn't wish that on anyone. <laughs>